This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 26th of May. Today, we discuss why developing countries in Asia are finding it difficult to find funding for projects with environmental benefits and how this investment gap can be closed. With us today is Ms. Valerie Kwan, Director of Corporate Engagement at the Asia Investor Group on Climate Change. Thanks for joining us today, Valerie. Uh, thanks for having me, Audrey. So, Valerie, let's talk about this investment gap. The United Nations has estimated that developing countries will need to invest as much as $4.5 trillion annually to meet their sustainable development goals, such as switching to renewable energy. But what is this gap now for emerging markets in Asia? And how does it compare with you know, other regional markets? Yeah, it is indeed true that there is a significant finance gap, especially on the mitigation investment flows. What this means is that uh, investments need to be scaled up significantly, especially in the developing countries in Asia. So if we look at the gap between the annual mitigation investment needs and where they currently are at uh, in the recent past few years, you will find that we still need three to six times as much as what we currently have on an annual basis to invest into mitigation alone. So this is derived from the technical summary of the IPCC sixth assessment report on mitigation of climate change. And the key takeaway on the investment gap is that the mitigation investment flows still fall short of the investment needs across all sectors and all types of economies. Uh, But in particular, it's very notable in the developing countries. Now, the 4.5 trillion figure that you've cited uh, is an estimate from the UN for achieving broader sustainability goals. So it also includes other things on basic infrastructure, food security, Uh, and and all of that. So it goes beyond uh, renewable energy. And what we currently have is is not a like-for-like comparison, but I think it's important for us to look into the opportunity side of things uh, where investment opportunities are to support Asia's transition to net zero. At AIGCC, we have published a report last year called uh, Asia's Net Zero Energy Investment Potential. So the report looks into the uh, opportunities in the energy sector in particular. So the figure that we came up through the estimation is between 26 trillion US dollars to 37 trillion US dollars of new investment opportunities all the way out to 2050. Now, this is for the energy sector alone. And we have extrapolated from various sources uh, that looks at the opportunities in their respective markets. So the investments that will be needed to create the transition pathway that is consistent to a 1.5 degree world or a 2 degree world um, is is what's needed. So um, in other words, the 1.5 degree world, in that world, we will need up to 37 trillions of US dollars of investments opportunities between now and 2050. So these figures, they are uh, between 1.7% to 2% of Asia's GDP 
and is projected to be investments well within the means of most countries. And that is considered to be uh, much more affordable than inaction or the lack of investments in the mitigation area. And I think what this means is that when we invest into transition, and transition is going to be a key concept that I'll be referring to a lot, is that the investments needs to uh, go into partially funding uh, through the reduction of fossil fuel imports and the redirection of fossil fuel capital expenditure. But I think the first port of call is quite clear is to focus on decarbonizing the utility sector and to have the infrastructure ready to support decarbonization of the economy through electrification. So yeah, together with that and also the uh, other technologies that I have just mentioned in the hard to abate sector, all of these will be requiring investments. So Valerie, what are the likely reasons behind this uh, sustainability investment gap for Asia? And also in some cases, uh, there is the money for green projects, for example, from big investors such as pension funds, but there aren't always sufficient good quality projects in the region to invest in. So is that something you're seeing as well? Yeah, thank you, David. So when we look at projects to invest in for Asia, I think there is sometimes a gap in the understanding of what constitutes a quality project and subsequently where investors should be putting their money into. Uh, Ultimately, the aim is always to support Asia's transition to net zero and uh, indeed, renewable energy is, is the most cited, it's the least contentious of all investments, it has very clear cut boundaries, and is very easy to integrate into investment policy. So all of these are very good. But we should also be cognizant of the fact that in Asia, financing into transition is an area that is critically important. So currently, it's true that the lacking of standardized uh, definition across what we classify as green is a hurdle that we need to overcome. Uh, It is also an area that policymakers are heavily involved in as part of their way of playing into uh, being part of the solution. And uh, there is progress that is needed to be made. And since a couple of years ago, as the EU taxonomy was being rolled out, it has expedited the need for regional taxonomies to be in place. And now really is a time for us within Asia to identify what that means for our region. So we are seeing an emerging trend in uh, taxonomy development There are lots of consultations happening in in Asia, and uh, ideally this will help close uh, the gap on green taxonomies. So one thing that I wanted to just to bring up as well on the topic of transition is that GFANS, which is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, a global coalition of key financial institutions uh, that was launched last year at COP26, as an industry-wide alliance, they also have been consulting on this work on transition finance. And I think the key challenges lies in our ability to give transition a clear definition. And then once we get through that, to scale it up and to accelerate change, because banks are often the key provider of financing in Asia, and we will need some pilot projects to prove the concept of transition in order for us to then see to it that investments are being put into these areas um, and and into the areas that are most needed for Asia at this point of the transition. So Valerie, you did mention that the lack of a clear definition or standards of what constitutes a green activity is one stumbling block for investors to put their money into green projects in Asia. But I was wondering if you could explain why this is so important for investors to look at. Sure, sure. I think when when we talk about this, and I think it's also to, important to think about uh, meeting national priorities, especially in, in this um, 
you know, in, in this currently geopolitically sensitive period, to understand when we talk about taxonomies, when we talk about energy mix, uh, what it means uh, when we talk about green investments is is important because it's something that we're all grappling with. And to understand how policy actions would impact the nation's readiness to mitigate climate change and achieve climate goals over the long run, that is uh, important. But ultimately, coming back to the idea of standards and, and guidance for investors, I think establishing a common global baseline, that is critically important because we do need to get more granular into the implementation of this. For example, we I think it's, it's quite common that we talk about the issues with data gaps in climate reporting within uh, Asian corporates. There could be uh, unclear definitions, uh, fragmented data that's pre- presenting challenges for investors when they want to calculate what their financed emissions are. And all of that points to the direction that a regulated and aligned reporting approach Uh, against international disclosure standards in the region will be necessary. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Can you just talk a bit more about Singapore's role in this? Because, you know, Singapore is trying to work with ASEAN on a green taxonomy. Sure. Uh, And you're completely on point on the fact that we have uh, we do need governments uh, working on developing frameworks, and it's great to see more of this work being done of recent. And uh, AIGCC has recently been invited to participate in the ASEAN Taxonomy uh, Stakeholder Consultation as well. And what this seeks to do really is to provide an overarching framework for existing regional approaches, and that includes the Green Finance Industry Task Force work which is coordinated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And the Singaporean taxonomy is, is quite similar to the EU taxonomy in a way that it contains the level of granularity in technical specifications for eligible activities, which is uh, also referenced in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So MAS is launching a public consultation around this uh, on the taxonomy, and we'll be looking at expanding on a traffic light approach to give more granularity to how we apply this and, and what the thresholds are for the classification. And so coming back to the ASEAN taxonomy, as I said, it is seen to be a measure to avoid greenwashing and it will help fund managers refine and benchmark sustainability at a more granular level. What we are currently seeing in terms of the demand from investors is the need for clear and consistent standards. And it is anticipated that the ASEAN taxonomy can boost confidence in financial products in in ASEAN and uh, to enhance the transparency through this common framework. So one issue that I've alluded to earlier around the potential inclusion of gas into the taxonomy, this continues to be a point of contention. Uh, It has been a concern for Europe and Korea in in their processes in developing their respective taxonomies. Um, And and I think it might be ASEAN countries as well. So all in all, I think what's important is that investors do note that they need to keep up with the changes to the taxonomies because uh, new sectors may be added and the thresholds for the activities that we discuss, they may be included or excluded over time. And I think all of this is a necessary mechanism for uh, for the transition. Now, there's one more point that I wanted to bring on to in terms of solutions to overcome 
these uh, practical obstacles that we talk about uh, in Asia's transition to net zero. And that's slightly outside of, of taxonomies, but I think it's very relevant as a test case because it is worth noting that uh, there are public-private partnership opportunities to uh, scale up low-carbon transition in the region. So the example that I wanted to cite on is the Asian Development Bank's announcement of the energy transition mechanism at COP26. The plan for this uh, ETM is to speed up the closing of um, coal-fired power plants and then through that to lower the biggest source of carbon emissions from coal. And the idea for this energy transition mechanism is for it to serve as a platform to then have these public-private partnerships buy out the coal plants and then to wind them down within 15 years, which is sooner than a a coal plant's normal lifetime. A coal plant would normally have an average lifetime of 40 to 50 years, and in many cases will extend to be even longer than that. So we have the first round of seed financing coming through uh, from Japan's uh, Ministry of Finance, uh, which has committed to a grant of 25 million US dollars, ultimately to pilot projects and to build the case for ETM. So I think we're really looking forward to more of these examples going forward as uh, coal continues to be a predominant source of power and and we, we do need to have a practical solution to face out of them. So another possible solution that is being talked about is blended finance. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So uh, blended finance attracts commercial capital towards projects that contribute to sustainable development, whilst also ensuring that they provide financial returns to investors. The objective of having blended finance is to to support projects which traditionally would have been very difficult to get funding. And it comes with an element of social equality. It it comes with the theme of uh, trying to uplift economies And it's separate from transition finance because it goes beyond the themes of transitioning into low carbon. So just to cite an example from one of our members, uh, CDPQ, which is a Quebec-based Canadian uh, asset owner, they have been in the forefront of this work. And what they've been doing is with other institutional investors and banks and development uh, agencies like ADB and the World Bank, uh, all of which have good uh, expertise in frontier markets, they, they come together to try and attract philanthropy foundations who also want to play a part to become a catalyst to finance certain projects. But we do know that it takes numerous actors to uh, make this happen. And what they have been trying to do with this is to pull together this group uh, where they can and to make some of these projects, which were you know traditionally difficult to finance, to receive the funding through this blended finance approach. And I think Governments and regulators, they do realize that they have to leverage on the private sector because governments won't be able to do this themselves in the transition to a net zero economy. So getting both sides together on the same page and at the right time is the key challenge that needs to be overcome. Ultimately, the aim is to get everybody on board to invest in zero emission solutions uh, and to catalyze the actions that are required before 2030 for us to have time to reap those results and to achieve net zero by 2050 or at any point at the second half of the century. So that is the idea behind it. So Valerie, at the UN um, Climate Change Conference COP26 last year, we really saw kind of an unprecedented involvement of the private sector. I think they came together and pledged some $130 trillion to help countries reach net zero uh, emissions under the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. How effective do you think um, this commitment is? Yeah, thanks for that question. So 
I think it's important for us to uh, note that the actual deployment of the pledge capital is going to be critical. And it will involve, for example, capital having to be redeployed. And I think everyone's eyes now are on the private sector for them to follow through on what they've committed on through Glasgow. So the accountability element of this is important. And it's also important to look into the private sector on whether or not they have a aligned view on how they will be reporting on their progress to achieve net zero. So I think their transparency on on how they achieve net zero will be one of the measures of success. Um, but all in all, I think we cannot look at the private sector commitment in silo because there are also climate policies that are supporting this work that needs to happen at the same time. and. If we can also, at the same time, progress to have legally binding policies in place, then that will enable us to mobilize the private sector even further and for us to see that their commitments are, are followed with concrete actions. And I think one area slightly less discussed in Asia, but it's going to be increasingly relevant, is the need for companies to be transparent on their uh, climate lobbying positions. Now, there are increasing number of Asian economies making national pledges for net zero by 2050, 2060 or beyond. And it's the climate lobbying position of the private sector, which will be a true testament to whether or not these actions and commitments are fully aligned with the national pledges. So I think that also is an area that we should be looking at. So I think that's all for me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Valerie. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for Greenhouse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Greenhouse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.